The Russian Revolution in 1917 brought the Bolsheviks to power. For the first time in history, the working class not only seized, but retained state power. What was the experience of the Soviet Union? How did it change global politics in the 20th century? What did socialism achieve and what caused the Soviet Union to fall? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're starting a new series, The Rise and Fall of the Soviet Union and the Lessons for Socialists. On the first episode of this multi-part series, we'll be discussing the context of the 1917 revolution, the civil war that followed, and the important and incredible achievements of the Soviet Union. We'll be talking with Carlos Martinez, author of The End of the Beginning, Lessons of the Soviet Collapse. He is also the co-founder of the No Cold War campaign, and he is the editor of the political analysis site, inventthefuture.org. Carlos Martinez, welcome to the Socialist Program. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with you. Thank you. I read your book, The End of the Beginning, and I thought... This is a book that everyone who cares about socialism should read. And I think it's critically important for people who think they're socialists or want to be socialists or trying to understand socialism to understand the Soviet Union. Because when we argue with those who say that socialism may have been a nice dream but turned out to be a totalitarian nightmare or socialism was a dream, but in practice couldn't work. As socialists, you have to deal with the question of the Soviet Union. What was it? What were its achievements? And ultimately, why did it fail or fall? And of course, when it did fall in 1991, all of the apologists for capitalism rose to the fore. They were in a celebratory mood. They declared the end of history. People had evolved through earlier social systems, the system of slavery, the system of feudalism. And then we had the system of capitalism, and there was an attempt for a new system, socialism. But since it failed, we had come to the end of history. Capitalism, the crowning achievement of humanity was that we would live under the rule of billionaires. That was the mood of the bourgeoisie and their apologists in 1991 and afterwards. So, again, we have to study the Soviet Union. We have to understand the Soviet Union. I want to just get started by asking you how you decided to write this book when you wrote it, because it's a relatively new book. It didn't come out in 1999, eight years after the collapse of the Soviet Union or 2009, but almost in 2020. I believe the publishing date is 2019. Anyway, your own thinking about this. Yeah, I I hadn't set off with any plan of writing a book about the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was researching it. The book that I was planning to write and that I wanted to publish in 2017 was 
on the centenary of the Soviet Revolution, and that you know it was going to talk about the experience of the socialist countries so far. You know, the first the first century of actually existing socialism. And I started by researching the Soviet Union. I read a couple of books about the collapse. I read Bachman Azad's book. I read the Kotz and Weir book, Revolution from Above. I read the Socialism Betrayed, Kieran and Kenny book, Michael Parenti's Black Shirts and Reds. And all of a sudden, I had a you know a lot of ideas in my head. I started writing an article for my blog, which you kindly mentioned earlier, Invent the Future, about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I realized that I, you know, I just couldn't fit everything that needed to be said into a single article. And, you know, it it ended up being a number of articles and then finally was turned into a book. And, you know, I, I hope it's useful. I think there's a fair amount that's been written about the Soviet collapse and, you know, some interesting and some useful things. I guess quite a bit that's been written about it comes from a fairly partisan perspective within the left. So it's a you know, a Trotskyist assessment, or a Stalinist assessment, or a Maoist assessment, or a Hodgeist assessment, anti-revisionist assessment, etc. And then obviously there's the bourgeois assessments, which are significantly less useful. But I, I kind of wanted to synthesize the best ideas from all the different, you know, factions and critiques and, and sections of the left. Well, as a Marxist, I approach issues, historical and contemporary issues, or try to anyway, through the lens of historical materialism, meaning looking at events, movements, both before and now, not as a, a history of heroes and traitors or great men, usually men, but rather to try to have an objective faculty and understand and determine and come up with an understanding based on a factual presentation, but also through the lens of Marxism. And of course, if you're a Marxist and the Marxists, in this case, Lenin and the other amazing leaders who made up the, the Bolshevik revolution and the Bolshevik party, just a, a pantheon of revolutionary figures who had lived underground and lived in prison and suffered so much, who came to, to Marxism, not in, in France or Germany, in the advanced capitalist countries where socialism took root first, but under the conditions of czarism. And, you know, you, you look at all of those leaders and you look at what they said and how they accomplished what they did. Well, anyway, when we step back and we might think of them as heroes or some of them as traitors, this has been the tendency. It's divided the left. Were you, as you said before, were you for Stalin or Trotsky? Later, the division between the Soviet Union and China was also largely around personalities, Mao and Khrushchev not a historical materialist analysis. So let's just talk about the methodology that you used in the presentation here of an event that while it's 30 years old, there's still a lot that we might need to know about it that we can't yet know about it. In other words, it's a fairly recent and major event in history. Yeah, that's right. And and you've hit the nail in, on the head in terms of the need to situate 
the October Revolution and this process of construction of socialism in the Soviet Union, historically and geopolitically, we talk about the personalization of the revolution and the focus on figures like Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, etc. One particularly alarming trend among October Revolution historiography these days, and, and that I think we need to really counter, is this idea that the October Revolution was a sort of coup. It came out of nowhere, and it was just a matter of blunt force and the personality of, uh, you know, this aggressive personality of Vladimir Lenin, you know, the idea that Lenin and the Bolsheviks sort of opportunistically grabbed the reins in a power vacuum and imposed their rule through, you know, sheer force of arms, when, when nothing could be further from the truth. And I think that's a really essential thing for people to understand about the October Revolution. It was a popular revolution that met specific demands of the population at that time. You know, it was overthrowing what was a thoroughly discredited provisional government, a bourgeois government that had lost the support of the population, that had lost the support of the working class, that had lost the support of the peasants, that had put the brakes on a revolutionary process that feared more than anything the idea of the workers and peasants taking control and making it a really democratic revolution. You know, this was a government, a provisional government that was unwilling to pursue peace. You know, if, if there was any number one demand of the Russian people at that time, it was to get out of World War I. It was to stop engaging in this imperialist war and to break Russia's ties with English imperialism, with French imperialism. And ultimately, it was Lenin, it was the Bolsheviks who were ready and willing to struggle for these demands of the masses to turn their slogan, that famous slogan of peace, land and bread into reality, you know, all of those three, peace, land and bread, they were all indispensable. And it was the Bolsheviks that was the political force that was fighting for all of them to get Russia out of the war, to distribute land to the people, to resolve the food crisis. You know, that's the basic historical drive, the basic historical motive of the October Revolution. And we shouldn't allow this history to be personalized or, you know, or for the revolution to be labeled as a coup, a sort of random one-off event that came from nowhere. Yeah, there's so many different factors when we look at the year 1917 that are detonators for the revolution. And the revolution keeps going through different stages and phases. When Lenin comes back to Russia at the end of March, early April, depending on what calendar we're using, and there's basically a euphoria. The czar has just been overthrown, the monarch. There's a new government, the provisional government, and it's filled with revolutionary optimism. You know, the revolutions happen rarely in history, you know, very rare. And it's like a celebration of the oppressed. And they're like, the new day has arrived. And Lenin comes back and says, well, this is only the beginning, We've completed one stage of the revolution, and he issues a speech to the Bolsheviks and then to the Mensheviks and then really to the, all of the different tendencies, which is known historically as the April Thesis, where he says, we're going to go forward and no support for this government because it's still in alliance with Britain and France, meaning that the war will continue and the people want the war to end. The soldiers who are mainly peasants want to come back and farm they're going hungry. Their families are starving. They don't want to keep fighting. Already, like, millions have died. 
And Lenin says, look, we're going to we're going to take another step. No support for this government. We're going to basically topple the government. But he says, not now. He says, not now. In fact, our main tactic now is to persistently and patiently explain to the workers and to the peasants why the government that they so euphorically embrace at that moment isn't going to be able to do the job. And he says, we can't jump ahead of the process. The reason I'm mentioning this is your point. There was no coup. This was not Lenin coming in opportunistically having like a a night raid on the Winter Palace and suddenly taking the reins of power. It's a long, protracted process that goes through what's called the June days and then the July days. And then the right wing attempts to overthrow this weak sort of bourgeois government that's in August with the Kornilov counteroffensive, the counteroffensive of the Tsarist of the generals. And in each and every stage, Lenin and the Bolsheviks are navigating through these troubled, complicated waters. And at the end of the process, only at the end, by mid or late September, do they have the majority of the Soviets, which are councils of workers or soldiers or peasants. I want to just examine this again, what 1917 really was, because again, revolutions are so rare. Yeah, I mean, I think you've put it well. You know, in February 1917, you have what's called the February Revolution, which finally, after a long protracted struggle, gets rid of Tsarist rule and replaces Tsarist rule with a provisional government, which is essentially led by by the capitalist class, by the bourgeoisie, by Kerensky, by the cadets. And the story of February to October 1917, which is, you know, in any reasonable sense, a very short period of time, you know, it's nine months, you know, in our terms of political organizing, you know, you organize in the United States, I organize in Britain, nine months is nothing. But in a revolutionary situation, a hell of a lot can happen in nine months. And really the content of that period is this process of the Bolsheviks putting forward their strategy, ruthlessly and relentlessly exposing the limitations and the renegacy of the provisional government, which, as you've said, it's not pulling out of the war. It's not bringing the peasants home from the front. It's not nationalizing the land. It's not expropriating the exploiters, the capitalists. So the Bolsheviks are doing the hard work. They're propagandizing at the front among the soldiers. They're propagandizing in the factories. They're winning the support of the workers, the soldiers, the poor peasants for the continuation and the deepening of the revolutionary process for the construction of socialism. And they put forward a concrete program of withdrawing Russia from the war, nationalizing the land, expropriating the capitalists. And over the course of time, this program won widespread support. And that's why the revolution took place in October. And it's also why the revolution was able to survive. You know, that wasn't a fluke that they can take power and they can hold power in spite of a civil war, a war of intervention, the invading armies of 14 countries coming and trying to, you know, kill the revolution in its cradle. You know, the October Revolution survived and it could only survive because its program and its activities had won the very broad support of the masses of the people. Lenin wrote the book State and Revolution. He started to write it in December 1916. He continued to write it. He was in a library in Switzerland writing about State and Revolution. And then suddenly there's a revolution. 
The February Revolution, it wasn't because people read the book. The book isn't actually published until the end of 1917. But he's trying to study and think about the revolution, and he's advancing ideas about what a socialist government might look like. I mean, you know, there had been no blueprint for something like that. Marx, in fact, and Engels wrote nary a word about what a new government would look like. And Marx wrote in the Critique of the Gotha Program, for instance, some of the features or characteristic features of what a socialist government would look like when he was trying to help the German workers who were forming a, a new party, a unified party, adopt a program. But little had been said about what the future would look like. And Marx, in particular, was loath to like have a blueprint. He was like, we're historical materialists. We don't have crystal balls. We're not magicians. We don't see into the future. The future society will be created by the future revolutionaries who made the revolution. All of that said, Lenin starts to project in State and Revolution. And, and some of the critics of Lenin say that it was either a con job or that he was it's a utopian vision of the future because he's writing about what's called a commune state. And, you know, there was the Paris Commune of 1871. Later in China, during the Cultural Revolution, when things moved to the left, there was an attempt to create the Shanghai Commune. The commune concept of this expansive workers' democracy where the workers themselves manage the affairs of society and the government. That it's not simply socialism isn't simply a, a state that has a lot of welfare benefits. That the workers are really the ruling class. They're taking charge. And so the Russian Revolution happens. It's a peaceful, basically a bloodless revolution. Not completely, but almost. By the time the October Revolution, which actually in our calendar is November 7th, not October. Uh, but then the Civil War starts, as you alluded to. And it's really not just a war inside of Russia. It really is an example or a, a precursor of what later becomes known, or I certainly would know it as the global class war, where the conflict is aligned based on classes. The proletariat in Russia now has power, along with the poor peasants, and the reactionaries, the landlords, the capitals, they want their society back. They want their property back, but they're joined by the imperialists who also want to help them. I want to talk about the impact of the Civil War because Lenin's concept of a commune state sort of gets drowned out in those first couple of years because instead of it being an expansive democracy, it's a civil war. And there's nothing less democratic than a war and even perhaps nothing less democratic than a civil war where you either win or you die. You don't trifle or you know, play around at the edges. Let's right. talk about that. Yeah. I mean, firstly, you brought up State and Revolution, and I absolutely think that that's a book everyone who's interested in socialism and Marxism should read. Ideally, should be read alongside left-wing communism and infantile disorder, proletarian revolution and the renegade Kautsky. But, you know, I think the key of State and Revolution is that Lenin's arguing against this trend within Marxism that is basically saying, you know, we don't we don't need a revolution. The proletariat doesn't need to take power. We don't need a workers' state. We can work within capitalist democracy, gain a majority in capitalist parliament. 
and then we'll be able to create a better life. We'll be able to build socialism within that framework, essentially, of a capitalist state. So it's a it's a politics, it's an ideology that sees the state as existing outside of the basic class framework of society. And Lenin kind of takes things back to, to Marx, and he, he looks at Marx and Engels' analysis of the Paris Commune, um, the book The Civil War in France, and critique of the Gotha program, as you said, and said, you can't extract the idea of the state and the idea of democracy from the nature of classes. And what we want, if we're going to be able to sustain and defend our revolution, we're going to need a worker's state. We're going to have to create something which is democratic for the working class, but which is a class dictatorship, which takes away democratic rights from the landlords and from the exploiters. Um, now, what, as you say, in 1917, 1918, what the revolution, what the Soviet people faced was what Michael Parenti refers to as siege socialism, you know. And he makes this point that in order to survive any revolution, actually, has to break the stranglehold exercised by the previous ruling classes who enjoy all the connections, all the resources, all the traditions of power, etc. And on top of that, the revolution has to face a state of siege imposed by imperialism, which wants to suffocate any step in the direction of socialism. And imperialism was then, and today remains, the predominant force in world politics. The type of society that can withstand that sort of pressure very much isn't a communist utopia. There's very little withering away of the state. And as you very well know, that's an expression of Engels and an important formulation in the Marxist theory of the state, this idea that once the working class has captured power, it sets itself up as the ruling class, it takes control of the state, but with the aim of essentially getting rid of the state because you've eliminated the economic basis for it. You've ended exploitation of one group of people by another. You've ended private ownership of the means of production. And the state, this repressive structure you know, of organized violence, gradually ceases to have a useful role. So they talk about the government of persons being replaced by the administration of things. Now, that very much didn't happen at any point in the Soviet Union. And it's literally never happened during our whole first century of socialism from 1917 until today. And you know, whatever one thinks of actually existing socialism in China, in Cuba, in Korea, in Vietnam, in Laos, you know, and I, I support them all unreservedly, no one would claim that the state has withered away in each of those societies. What exists in each of them is a strong workers' state, pretty highly centralised, and the reason for that is clear enough that socialism remains confined to a relatively small part of the world. And there's no way that Marx and Engels could have foreseen that. And capitalism and imperialism maintain significant military strength and socialist societies have to protect themselves. So in a sense, yes, I think the commune state was impossible, more or less, under conditions of war. And I'd argue that to some degree, at least, it has continued to be impossible in this whole historical epoch where socialism is growing up alongside and surrounded by hostile imperialist forces. Yeah, there's an organically counter-revolutionary character to capitalism and to the bourgeoisie so that whenever, say for the U.S. imperialist ruling class, whenever there's a sign of weakness within a socialist system or within a socialist government or within an independent government that may be perhaps semi-socialist or, you know, 
however one wants to characterize it in a class or social or political way, something independent from imperialism, whenever there's a weakness, the imperialists zone in on it. And there's a full spectrum awareness of vulnerabilities. So, and many of the vulnerabilities are created by imperialism. In in the case of Cuba, if you deprive people of the ability to trade and you're an island nation, obviously unable to produce and create all that you need for your population on the island, if you surround that island economically, and it's even though it's a figurative blockade, it's a blockade. And then the Cuban people say, well, look, we don't have electricity and we don't have air conditioning in the middle of this hot summer in 2021. And they come out into the street and say, give us electricity because we only have it two or three hours a day. The same imperialists who deprive them of electricity and food and medicine say, look, they're fighting for freedom. They're fighting against socialism and communism. So the imperialists create the vulnerability, then try to maximize political advantage from it. But even when it's not under the circumstances of imperialist-created vulnerabilities through sanctions, etc., there are vulnerabilities because this is the other part of the Marxist concept of the transition to socialism. It's not like you snap your fingers and suddenly we're in a classless society. Marx makes the point, and Lenin echoes it, that the new society comes in with all what they describe as the birthmarks of the old society. If we had a revolution tomorrow in the United States, we could nationalize the pharmaceuticals, get rid of the private insurance companies, nationalize the banks, get rid of people's mortgages, make sure that every worker has a right to a home, no more rent, et cetera, et cetera, things that would be immediately wonderful and embraced by a big part of the population. But would there be class divisions? Yes, there would, because 20% of the population is still pretty rich. And that's not a small number. That's 65 million people. Mm -hmm. And then there's individualism and greed and racism and sexism and patriarchy and bigotry against gay and lesbian people. There's so many the awful, disgusting parts of bourgeois class society don't vanish overnight. And so this is a process. This is not an event. There is an event, the revolution, but that event, qualitative as it is, is part of a process. Yeah. And I think it's right to highlight that our experience of socialism so far has been on the basis of socialist societies and socialist revolutions taking place pretty much exclusively in relatively backward countries. You know, you quoted Marx where he talks in Critique of the Gotha Programme about socialism inevitably suffering from certain defects, having just emerged after prolonged birth pangs from capitalist society. But he's talking about Germany, about France, about Britain, about the US. You know, even by that stage, these are relatively advanced capitalist societies. He's not talking about China. He's not talking about Russia, and never mind, you know, the rest of the Russian Empire in the Caucasus and in Central Asia. You know, you think things were pretty bad in the major Russian population centers in in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. But once you get to Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, the Tsarist Empire had been bleeding these places dry of their resources and their labor while strangling them in underdevelopment, you know, for centuries. This is very much not the breeding ground for socialism that Marx and Engels had envisaged. You know, if you look at what characterized pre-revolutionary Russia, regular famines, widespread hunger, 
near universal illiteracy, startling inequality, a police state of the worst kind, you know, workers and peasants endured the most horrifying conditions, women were subjected to terrible exploitation, oppressed nations were subjected to terrible exploitation and discrimination, anti-Jewish pogroms were a matter of you know, routine, a matter of course. So this is the starting point for building socialism in the Soviet Union. Deeply entrenched backwardness, followed by a ruinous civil war and the utter hostility of the capitalist world. Um, you know, so this is how we have to understand. I mean, I think there's a tendency perhaps to compare what was built in the Soviet Union in, let's say, the 1960s with the way North American, you know, middle-income North Americans live now. And that it's just not a useful comparison. It's not comparing like with like. You know, if you want to compare what they built in the Soviet Union with something, you compare it with what came before it, or for that matter, what came after it with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which I think, you know, we'll probably talk about in a later show. But from 1991 till 1998, the average life expectancy in this in the former Soviet Union fell by five or six years. You know, an unprecedented precipitous drop is something that never happens essentially outside the context of a war. So if you want to understand what good happened in the Soviet Union, what was the, the basic nature of that society in terms of improving people's lives, then that's what you have to compare it with, what came before, what came after. Indeed. And I'm glad you mentioned it. And again, for our audience, this is the first of a multi-part series where we're going to talk about the Russian Revolution, how Soviet socialism came into existence, under what conditions, as you're mentioning, a very you know, devastating civil war, millions dead, famine, illiteracy, poverty of the worst type, and then the international environment of unrestrained hostility from all of the advanced capitalist countries with their armies. And then there was periods of industrialization and collectivization and growth and the amazing defeat of fascism and then greater industrialization and the Soviet Union becomes the second biggest economy. And then there are new problems that emerge in the 70s and ultimately a political crisis, an internal political crisis causes the Soviet Union to collapse. We're going to go through all of that because we don't want to we don't want to just take a snapshot of this subject. In order for socialists, again, going back to the beginning, socialists have to understand what the Soviet Union was, why it achieved what it did, and also what its defects were, because we're going to have to answer the question. If you're for communism or Marxism or socialism, and socialism and Marxism and communism were conflated with a government, with a state, and that state has fallen how do you explain it? So we're going to do all of that. But I want to go back to the point that you just made is that the tempo of development in the Soviet Union was not only frenzied, it was not only rapid, it was also of a tortured character, in fact. And I'm looking at your book, Carlos Martinez, and chapter one, The Lion's Point of View you start with an African proverb, until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. African proverb. Your point being, you know, the enemies of socialism are telling the story of the workers making this valiant effort to create socialism. But in that chapter, in chapter one, you quote Yuri Andropov, and he's 
one of the key leaders of the Soviet Union. He was the general secretary. He tragically, really, for the Soviet Union and for the, that project, became very ill and died almost immediately after taking office in the early 80s. But on the 60th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, he said or wrote these words, the path traversed by the Soviet Union over the last 60 years is equivalent to a whole epoch. History perhaps has never known such a spectacular advance from a condition of backwardness, misery, and ruin to the grandeur of a great modern power with highly advanced culture and steadily growing welfare of the people. I mean, this is the point that you were also making, is that the Soviet Union and socialism taking place in a backward country, an impoverished country, a country ravaged by famine, illiteracy, under hostile international circumstances, must catch up and has to catch up. But unlike Western Europe or Western European capitalism, which did it over a couple centuries, it did it over a couple decades. And that's what I mean that about the tempo of development itself is in a way unnatural but the Soviet Union is not alone. We're similarly seeing something like that happen with China. Yeah. You know, the Andropov quote, I think, is a good one, and it's really important. And I think it probably will sort of fail to resonate with people who haven't seriously studied the Soviet Union, because everything we really hear about the Soviet Union in the West, in the capitalist world, is demonization. You know, it was a sort of prison society, a police state. It was characterized by mass poverty, political persecution, long you know, queues at shops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's such a distorted, demonizing picture. And I think it's it's so important to talk about the positive things, actually unprecedented progress that was made during that period of socialist construction in the Soviet Union. Um, because uh, yeah, as we've talked about, Russia was a very long way behind the major capitalist powers. It has a revolution, then suffers this three-year war of intervention, two years of relative peace, but with the full understanding that a world war is on the way, and hence the very, very frenzied development that you've referenced from 1929 onwards. Then Nazi Germany attacks in 1941, and the Soviet Union, okay, it won the war, it liberated Europe from the yoke of fascism, but it also suffered incredible losses, an estimated 27 million people killed, a very large proportion of them young men of working age, vast quantities of infrastructure destroyed. So in 1945, you've got an exhausted country that almost has to start from scratch. And you, know, you can compare that with the United States, which lost very few people in the war, suffered very little damage, and in fact, reaped enormous profits. Um, and yet, nonetheless, through all of this turmoil, in the face of the most incredible militant hostility of the imperialist world, the Soviet Union became a developed country with living standards actually comparable to the advanced capitalist countries. You know, in terms of all the usual important metrics, life expectancy, food intake, literacy, the Soviet Union was among the leading countries. It went from almost universal illiteracy to universal literacy. It became a leader in science and technology. As you know, in 1957, just 12 years after the conclusion of World War II, it launched the world's first space satellite. For the first time in Russian history, 
the food problem was solved. Everybody ate, you know, everybody had housing, everybody received an education, everybody had access to healthcare, everybody had access to cultural life. You know, the USSR became the book publishing capital of the world, and with not only Russian literature, but the classics from all over the planet. So what had essentially been a very backward country was transformed in a very short period of time into an ultra-literate society. Everybody had a job. You know, that's really important. Yeah, we don't have that. I live in Britain. We don't have that. You live in the United States. You don't have that. Everybody had a home. You know, and, and in that sense, the Soviet Union, as the first socialist state, showed it. It proved that there are certain intractable economic and social problems that capitalism cannot solve and that only socialism can solve. You know, the US and Britain and France couldn't win employment at the time, and they still can't. You know, capitalism relies on unemployment. What Marx called the reserve army of labor, that's that's a form of labor discipline, right? You know, if you don't work hard enough or you demand better pay or you demand better conditions, well, there are a few million people who are lining up to take your job. That's indispensable to capitalism. And when it doesn't work, you know, like in this very strange situation that we find ourselves in currently, where demand for labor temporarily outstrips supply, you know, it's a kind of crisis. It's like all of a sudden a very serious economic problem. We can't exploit people to the extent that we that we want to. This is this is unacceptable to us. In an economy organized on a socialist basis, where you're producing for the purpose of people's well-being rather than profit. Unemployment doesn't make any sense. The more people that work, the more things you can produce that people need, food, homes, schools, consumer goods, etc. So the Soviet Union proved that socialism can solve these problems. The Soviet Union was the first country that was able to solve the issue of homelessness, doing what Engels had talked about as far back as 1872 in his book on housing. You know, he says a worker's state will solve the issue of homelessness very easily. It will take it will requisition empty buildings and it will give them to workers who don't have homes or who live in very cramped conditions. That kind of came into my mind in 2017, around the time of the Grenfell fire disaster in London, because Jeremy Corbyn, who was leader of the opposition at that time, made this point, which you know, for a bourgeois politician or a politician in our capitalist parliament to make is sort of unprecedented, such an obvious thing to say. He said, a lot of people, hundreds of people, have been rendered homeless by this fire, we should requisition buildings and pass them on to workers. Of course, the government didn't do it. And Engels talks about this you know, with the point of explaining the difference between a capitalist state and a worker's state. A capitalist state won't do things like that because they impact profits, and a capitalist state has to serve the interests of the capitalist class first and foremost, and that means protecting profits. A worker's state, like the Soviet Union, is answerable primarily to the working class and the oppressed masses. Does it benefit the workers to solve homelessness? Does it benefit the workers to solve unemployment? It does, and therefore the Soviet Union did it. You know, The quality of life improved continuously throughout that period, certainly until, you know, let's say, the mid-1970s, when some level of stagnation set in for a, a bunch of reasons that I think we'll talk about in future. But, you know, the USSR was the fastest growing economy in the world for most of that period. By the 1970s, people had their basic needs met. And on top of that, they also increasingly had access to nice things, you know, consumer goods, televisions, refrigerators, and so on. Soviet Union became a leader in 
multiple areas of science and technology, top universities, top quality research. And sorry, I realize I'm kind of going on a bit of a diatribe here. But one last point I want to make on this is that all of this progress, all of these positive things were created on the basis of the efforts of the Soviet people themselves. Yes, you know, the US had a pretty good average standard of living, although albeit with much greater inequality, which meant that an awful lot of people in the US were suffering a level of extreme poverty that hadn't existed in the Soviet Union from certainly the 1950s onwards. Some West European countries also enjoyed a good average standard of living. But so much of this was based on colonialism and imperialism, on the exploitation and the oppression of the global South. You know, where would Europe be even today if it weren't for its history of slavery and colonialism? Where would the US be even today if it hadn't been for five centuries of internal colonialism and expansion throughout the continent? And then the last century of imperialism, the domination of natural resources, the exploitation of cheap labor in the global South. That's simply not the relationship the Soviet Union had with the global South in the Soviet case. The flow of resources was overwhelmingly in the opposite direction. The Soviets were providing aid, they were providing support, assistance to newly independent countries throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Middle East. So what the Soviet Union had, had achieved, the progress, the unprecedented progress in terms of raising people's living standards that it was able to achieve was done on the basis of the efforts of the Soviet people and the efficiency of the socialist system, not on the basis of colonialism or imperialism. Excellent points, excellent and important points. I want to just touch for a moment on the issue of unemployment, which is, of course, so destructive. And, you know, people have jobs and then suddenly an event happens. It's not an act of God. It's not a natural disaster. But millions of people suddenly lose their jobs. And it's kind of like we're told, well, it's a recession. Of course, you're going to have mass unemployment. What could one possibly do to change that? Because, you know, the boom-bust cycle is almost presented as a divine mandate. Like, this is the way things are. But what you're talking about, this full employment economy, in the 1930s, when the world capitalist recession became the Great Depression, when everything became economically and then socially and then politically destabilized such that... By 1939, all of continental Europe was fascist. You know, it could have gone socialist perhaps, but it wasn't going to go as it had gone. The center collapsed as this political, social, economic crisis evolved. But in the Soviet Union, I want to make sure our new audience understands this. There was no recession. The world capitalist market collapsed and there was global unemployment in the United States. One out of four workers was unemployed. The slogan of the Communist Party here in New York City, where I am, was fight, don't starve because people were literally starving. 5,000 people in America starved to death in 1933. And the Soviet Union, no recession, which showed that it wasn't obviously a divine mandate, that it was a premised on the social economic order and whatever other problems that come, and we'll talk about that later with a full employment economy, and there are problems that are associated with it, 
not having a recession, not having that millions of people suddenly dislocated, out of work, no money, unable to pay rent. What an achievement in and of itself. And again, clearly the byproduct of a planned economy, a publicly owned economy, a centralized economy. And if there was a problem in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, it was not an abundance of labor or surplus labor. It was a labor shortage. There was more to do than could be done by the available human beings. And then as the Soviet Union was preparing for World War II, because all the countries knew it was coming, it was going to be the the sequel to World War I, when it begins to industrialize and develop, you have to build tanks and bombs and bullets and rifles and machine guns and things that people can't use. I mean, in America, those are profitable enterprises. In a socialist economy, that's just money that's taken away from things that human beings actually need. Anyway, I just want to emphasize for our audience there was never a recession in the Soviet Union. Stagnation in the Soviet Union meant that the rate of economic growth slowed, but that's different from going into negative economic territory. Perhaps at the very beginning of World War II, when the, the German invasion destroyed so much of Soviet industry, maybe then you can see a drop. But that's the only time in the entire history of the Soviet Union where there was actually negative economic growth. A recession. Yeah, that's right. You know, probably the last year when, under the label of perestroika, the leadership essentially decided to disband the planning agency. That's when they went into negative growth in 1990 or 1991. But the general trajectory was constant growth, absolutely, and, and meeting people's needs. And I, I think you're right to, to highlight this quite successful attempt by the capitalist class to universalize its economic system, to universalize its system of production. And it's important for us in this context to highlight that the fundamental difference between socialism and capitalism from an economic standpoint in terms of production systems is that the whole purpose of capitalist production, the whole basis of the capitalist economy is profit. You don't produce anything. You don't engage in the economic process unless you can get some individual gain out of it. You know That's the basic rationale for capitalists. That's the basic rationale for manufacturers. That's the basic rationale for investors. Socialism is you know, essentially the opposite. The basic rationale for production is the social good. And it's very difficult to think of a context in which you would want to produce less and have fewer workers when you're trying to produce to actually meet people's needs, when you're, the purpose of the production process is to create housing for ordinary people, when it's to create goods that people can use, food, education, healthcare, etc. Another point that I kind of wanted to quickly bring in here, and which I think probably our viewers might not be familiar with, one of the unexpected impacts, you know, you could call it a side effect, of the October Revolution was that it ended up being a key motivator of the welfare state in the capitalist countries. A lot of the good things that we got used to in Western Europe, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Japan, 
came about to a significant degree because the welfare state had been introduced in the Soviet Union. You know, in order to take the wind out of the sails of the revolutionary movements at home, capitalist governments were forced to make concessions that they'd never even conceived of making before. You know, in Britain, the National Health Service and the mass social housing campaign were set up in the late 1940s and 50s in the context of a rising Soviet Union where healthcare and housing were already considered to be universal human rights. You know, people took them for granted. You didn't need to worry that you were going to get sick and that you weren't going to be able to work and that you weren't going to be able to take care of your family. You didn't need to worry that the landlord was going to increase the rent and you'd be out on the street. And, you know, so in order to kind of quell any emerging waves of revolution at home, capitalist countries were forced to submit far more easily than they would have been to the demands of the working class. And you know, as an aside, it's no coincidence that it was when the Soviet Union was collapsing and then collapsed that these rights started to be eroded in a pretty serious way in Europe and the Americas. Let's talk about the impact on the non-Russian nationalities because of the Russian Revolution and then the building of socialism. Now, again, we're going to talk later about why the Soviet Union collapsed and all of the, the problems that the Soviet Communist Party was dealing with. We're going to deal with that. But, you know, in your book, Carlos, you make the point that those of us living in the United States or living in Great Britain, living in Western capitalist countries, we, we get the narrative of failure. The Soviet Union was just one big failure, in addition to being a totalitarian nightmare culture debased, education, nothing, economic outcomes, very bad. Like this failure narrative was so embraced, even though, as you're explaining, as your book shows, there was all of these achievements coming from a country that was, I think at the time of the Russian Revolution, at the time of the end of World War I, I think the Russian economy was about one-twelfth the size of the U.S. economy and by 1970, was the second biggest economy in the world. But there's another element that's so important, which is it happened in Russia, in the Russian Empire, in what Lenin called the prison house of nations, meaning there were non-Russian peoples, hundreds of them, speaking different languages, different cultures, and their lands, their villages, their people themselves had become under the domination of Tsarist Russia, and the people yearned to be independent and sovereign and free and expressive in their own languages. So even what the Soviet Union was as a multinational state, where you had 15 republics, where you had the Supreme Soviet, but also the Soviet of nationalities, meaning the nationalities instead of having the Senate or what you have as the House of Lords, which I would consider to be the same, this U.S. Senate is the House of Lords, we had a second chamber that actually, in essence, constituted a veto over legislation unless it also comported to their own perceptions or perceived needs of their people. And I think I read a statistic in the 1980s when I was also trying to study perestroika at the beginning and trying to write about it, that I think it was in Kazakhstan, one of the non-Russian republics, a very 
territorially huge place, that the literacy rate in 1917 was like 2%. I might be wrong because I'm remembering something from 30 years ago, but 2%. And by 1970, the, the number of college graduates in Kazakhstan per capita surpassed France. And I was like, wow, an oppressed nationality in such a short amount of time. Anyway, let's talk about the impact of the Soviet Union on those non-Russian nationalities. Yeah, this is another really important point. And I think it showcases another fundamental dividing line, a fundamental difference between capitalism and socialism as your political, economic, cultural, ideological systems. Malcolm X famously said, capitalism is impossible without racism. What does he mean by that? He means that there's no way that capitalism can maintain itself as a system of exploitation built on a division of society into people who own and deploy capital and people who are forced to work for a living, who are forced to subject themselves to exploitation. There's no way that can be sustained without dividing working people along the lines of race. Capitalism is impossible without racism. You know, it's a very profound kind of soundbite of Malcolm X that brings in a huge volume of meaning. And I think you can say the converse. Socialism is impossible with racism. That socialism relies on a united working class that's able to work together towards its collective goals. All socialist societies have taken this question of dismantling racist structures and taking on the national question very seriously. You know, the Soviets certainly recognized the Tsarist Empire was a colonialist and a racist enterprise, and they immediately implemented the right of nations to self-determination. They immediately legislated equal rights for all nations, all ethnicities, all religions. They actively worked to build what you've described as a multinational state that fought against Russian chauvinism, you know, the fight against great Russian chauvinism was built into the Soviet constitution in the same way that the fight against Han chauvinism is built into the Chinese constitution. They took very seriously the protection of minority cultures. You know, one small example is that linguistics experts actually worked to develop alphabets for certain smaller minority languages that hadn't yet been alphabetized. School children in the non-Russian regions always learn their local languages in addition to Russian. And actually, one of the things that Russian nationalists like Yeltsin were complaining about in the 1980s is that the Soviet Union was what they called an affirmative action state. You know, far from exploiting the Eastern republics, Russia was actually subsidizing them in the interests of working to overcome this inequality that was the product of centuries of domination. I mean, the Eastern republics, there was a reason that the Central Asian republics were the least enthusiastic about disbanding the Soviet Union because they progressed the most under it. They benefited the most from it. You know, the level of economic and cultural advancement was unprecedented, as you've said, in regarding Kazakhstan. In Central Asia before the revolution, literacy was almost nil. But by the time of the Second World War, even just 20 years later, it was basically universal, you know, certainly for young people who'd gone to school. Um, you know, the literacy rate in the 1950s in, say, Tajikistan was significantly higher than it is in capitalist India, 
even today, you know, where today the literacy rate in India is around 75%, not to mention Afghanistan, which borders Tajikistan, which borders Turkmenistan, which borders Uzbekistan. You can well imagine that if it weren't for the Soviet period, those countries might well have been subjected to the same sort of kind of continuous nightmare at the hands of Western imperialism that Afghanistan has. So did the Soviet Union comprehensively and conclusively solve the national question and wipe out all problems? It didn't. Because these things are ultimately extremely complex, and also because latent nationalist sentiment and tensions were actively fanned, were actively fomented by the West as a means of destabilizing the USSR. Nonetheless, they did make an admirable effort and they achieved remarkable progress. It's also so revealing that as socialism starts to unravel in the 1980s, the national rivalries between the different bourgeoisies, the different property-owning or property-owning in an aspirational way, parts of the population start to think of the oil in Azerbaijan being Azerbaijan's oil or the agricultural products in Georgia belong to the Georgian bourgeoisie and, and the Russian bourgeoisie. Like once socialism starts to unravel and the bourgeois property relations reassert themselves, all of this venomous nationalism takes place. And we see it even now, like Russia and Ukraine in perpetual warfare. Ukraine was the second largest republic in the Soviet Union. The people in Azerbaijan and Armenia who were neighbors, who shared in part of an integrated economy. And if oil came from the Caspian, which is part of Azerbaijan, it was equally shared with the Armenians. Now people are at war, tens of thousands killing each other. It shows that nationalism or the venomous element of nationalism is part and parcel of bourgeois private property relations and that kind of social order. And as you said, the imperfections that undoubtedly still exist, and we can chronicle them, I'm sure, within the Soviet Union as a multinational state. It wasn't heaven on earth. But nonetheless, when you just objectively compare how were things before the collapse of the Soviet Union and then afterwards, there's no capacity to not to notice that everything became awful in terms of the conditions of nationalities. Yeah. And, you know, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, but it's important to note that it's made a permanent impact on the world, you know, because beyond all that progress within the Soviet Union itself, there was also the tremendous contribution that the Soviets made to socialist and anti-imperialist movements and countries around the world. I mean, it's highly unlikely that Cuban or Vietnamese socialism would have survived without Soviet support, for example. And this was something that has been said by Fidel Castro. It's been something that's been said by Mao Zedong, by Ho Chi Minh. You know, our revolutions were strongly reliant on the support they got from the Soviet Union, from the Comintern. Meanwhile, the USSR was at the forefront of the international support efforts for the liberation movements in South Africa, in Angola, in Namibia, in Mozambique. It gave very important support to revolutionary states in Ethiopia, in South Yemen, in Nicaragua. Obviously, it was a key source of support for the European people's democracies. And, you know, all of this is part of 
the Soviet workers' legacy to humanity. The USSR doesn't exist anymore, but its positive impact continues to be felt. And in that sense, October lives on. And, you know, just an aside on this, and it you know sounds obvious and it sort of probably shouldn't need saying really, but the Soviet Union won the Second World War. It was an incredibly hard-won victory, but it was a victory that could only have been won by a country that had taken the huge strides forward in science and technology and productivity that it had taken and that enjoyed massive popular support. Millions of people had to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in the fight against fascism. And the rest of us should be thanking our lucky stars that they did. Because what would have happened if the Soviet Union had folded in a few days, like France did, like Belgium did? You know, at that time, as you've said, pretty much all of continental Europe was occupied by the Nazis and their allies. Germany, Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, Italy, Greece, Hungary, Poland. If it weren't for the Soviet struggle against Nazism and the Chinese struggle against Japanese occupation, the whole of the Eurasian supercontinent might have been you know, a fascist hell on earth for decades to come. And no one can say what would have happened to the colonies in Africa. Most likely they wouldn't have won the wave of victories that they did win in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s. In summary, humanity would have lived through an extremely dark period. So the successes of the Soviet Union sort of expand beyond the time and space of, you know, Russia and the other republics of the Soviet Union between 1917 and 1991. They've become, you know, a historical phenomenon of incredible importance, incredible magnitude. You know, I had five other topics to talk to you about, Carlos, but I think I think this is a good way to end this, the first show in a multi-part series about the rise and fall of the Soviet Union and the lessons for socialists. I really want to thank you for joining us and being part of this project that the Socialist Program is undertaking. Again, I want everyone who's watching this show or listening to this podcast, depending on your medium, to immediately buy the book written by Carlos Martinez, The End of the Beginning, Lessons of the Soviet Collapse. Get the book now so that as we continue to discuss this in the shows going forward, you can do your own research. And I think, you know, it's never enough when we're trying to study a serious subject to listen to a speaker or a group of speakers and say, wow, Carlos Martinez knows so much. I'm going to use him as the reference point. You in your own book, you use all of those other authors that, you know, you use to study. And that's what we should all do. We should be talking with each other. We should be, you know, studying together we should also be studying on our own. And I really, really want to encourage our audience to do just that. On our second show in this series, we're going to be joined by author Vijay Prashad. Vijay wrote the book, The Red Star Over the Third World. And that book talks about the influence of the Russian Revolution in spreading Marxism to the East and to the South. In other words, how Marxism becomes really the, a global doctrine and tool for the liberation of humanity, not simply the proletarian class struggle, but for the struggle of oppressed nations, which becomes a dominant feature of world politics in the period between 1917 and then the 1950s and 1960s. And then, Carlos, if you're willing, 
We'll have you back to have other discussions. We want to be able to talk again about the sort of specific challenges that the Soviet Union faced and how the leaderships at different times dealt with it, how the Stalin era dealt with the problem of industrialization, collectivization, World War II, as you mentioned, and then the beginning of the Cold War, or what we would call the global class war. And then the ascendancy of Khrushchev following Stalin's death, the Brezhnev era, and finally, of course, Perestroika, Glasnost, the Gorbachev era, which ends in the unraveling of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp. Anyway, we have a lot of ground to cover, but Carlos Martinez, thanks so much for joining us. And this is the first episode of our show on the Soviet Union, the rise and fall of the Soviet Union lessons for socialists. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.